0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.
1: Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to My Life in Four Trades. Don't forget to subscribe if you like the conversation. You can also find more in-depth content and interviews with the world's brightest financial minds on realvision.com. Make sure you check it out.
2: Having humility when it comes to the markets, I think, is something that's really important to have. Because in a way, you know, if you have a portfolio of things, you're wrong every day. Some things go up and some things go down. So every single day, you are wrong for that particular day in a position. That's just the way it is, and you just learn to live with being wrong. You just have to be wrong less than being right.
1: Hi everyone, and welcome to another edition of My Life in Four Trades. Joining me today is the Chief Investment Officer at Bleakly Advisory Group, Peter Bookfar. Peter's story is unique, and I learned so much from our discussion about mitigating risk, strategically sizing up positions, and much more. Enjoy the conversation. Hi, Peter. Welcome to My Life in Four Trades.
2: Hi, Maggie. Uh, Great to see you again.
1: So before we get into your four trades, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? You know, where did you grow up? What were you like as a kid?
2: So I grew up on Long Island, uh, a town called Woodmere in the South Shore, and uh, was your typical kid who liked sports and music and uh, girls and usual high school kid. Uh, then went to school at uh, George Washington University and majored in finance and wanted to be a sports agent and uh, went to law school. And after the first year of law school that summer, I got a job at uh, the investment bank at the time before it was bought by Credit Suisse, uh, first Boston at the time. It was Donaldson Lufkin and Jen mm-hmm. as a, a grunt junior intern analyst uh, doing spreadsheets focused in, in the high yield world. And that taught me a lot in terms of reading balance. I mean, I learned a lot of this in college, but professionally reading mm. balance sheets and, and, and doing um, spreadsheet analysis of, of putting in different inputs and seeing what the output would be. And uh, decided not to go back to law school and stayed there for two years and then went on to, to different places. But it was sort of the bug of, of the markets that, that I caught that particular summer, even though I had an interest in the markets, uh, being a finance major, and even in high school, uh, mm. buying stocks. Uh, but it was really that job that sort of set me on the, the path that I wanted this to be my career, as opposed to just a hobby.
1: Yeah. So you were buying stocks in high school. Did money play an important role in your family? Or how did you even know what stocks were as a kid?
2: Well I was always into business. I always had small little tiny businesses that I had when I was growing up whether it was shoveling snow and ringing people's doorbells or if you sold enough little like flower seeds ringing people's doorbells you can get a Kodak camera I bought and sold baseball cards and then when I was in college I was at a, a trucking business bringing kids stuff to school and Bring, with a truck bringing it home at the end of the school year, so I was always intrigued by business. And to me, buying a stock was a way of investing in a business, and you know, as opposed to just speculating, it was not really like buying a stock hoping, hoping to make a dollar and selling it. I felt like it was a way to to invest in different businesses. So sort of got a taste of the markets. I didn't I didn't have any money then. You know, I was buying ten shares of this, five shares of that. So it wasn't yeah. like it was anything groundbreaking. But it sort of, you know, got your feet wet and, and what markets were like and what it means to, to invest in at the time, you know, calling a stockbroker and having them execute the trade for $250 to trade, which I think sometimes <laughs> was probably more than what I was paying for the stock, uh, you know, in total dollars. Uh, but, you know, yeah. it, it's, it, it's, it's having that, that experience of doing it yourself that, that teaches you a lot more than just reading it and learning it in a classroom.
1: Yeah, it sure does. It's it's interesting. You sounded like you were really entrepreneurial when you were young.
2: Uh, yeah. I just I was just what I what I enjoyed uh, was was business and and doing different things. And uh, so yeah, it was uh, it, it was it was what I I, I got my feet wet in uh, early on. And uh, I have to say though, I I did the, the trucking thing six times to- six trips, and. You know, Going to school would be one, coming home would be second. And five out of the six trips, uh, my, my truck broke down. <laughs> so I also learned th- the heartache of, of running a business and how it's not just you know all uh, nice smelling roses, that there's a, a, a tough side to running a business. And uh, having your truck break down five to six times when you're you know, a 19, 20 year old kid saying, oh geez, what do I do now? Certainly was an experience.
1: Yeah. Persistence and uh, perseverance, right? Uh, getting your hands dirty. That's the only way you learn that. So you're working really in the business, it sounds like right out of school. And so the first trade that stands out for you um, is one of your best, and it came pretty early on, right? Tell us about the Corrections Corporation. What was that all about?
2: So this this goes back to uh, 1992. So um, I had, again, started full-time at DLJ after deciding not to go back to, to finish law school. And uh, back then, they had this this booklet that included a few thousand different companies. It was an S- S&P-issued booklet. And there was basically one line item for every company, and whether it was a small company or uh, Coca-Cola. And it was one line item, the name of the company, and a description of what the company did, and then a bunch of financials.
1: I mean, this is wait. Just, just, I think it's worth pausing here for a second because this is incredible. It's like a phone book. I mean, it's. I think it's hard for f- people who come up in the digital age and you yeah. can Google and you've got sort of the interactive. You know, the idea that you had this tome that you had to go through with one line on each company, a uh, paper version. That's incredible.
2: Yeah, that that was a, that's a good way of explaining. It, it was, essentially was a phone book, and it was hundreds of pages listing you know thousands of different stocks. And I would literally like turn it page by page to learn about different companies, learn about different stocks. Now, I only had one line to read to learn about what they did. I mean, Coca-Cola selling soft drinks, that was an easy thing to understand, easy to put down. So I was just always trying to find unique businesses, one that made me say, wow, this is different. Let me check it out.
1: Now, are your other peers doing the same thing? Are you working on a desk or sort of set the scene for us? Like what's going on in your life, in your career? You know, what are you doing? Are you on a trading floor?
2: Well, th- this at the time, I was just a in, in a cubicle uh, in an open area with offices surrounding me. Uh, so I the, the trading floor was one floor above uh, that I would actually like to go visit all the time and just absorb what was going on. But this was sort of in my spare time, just leafing through page by page to try to find things that were interesting. So I came across uh, the company you mentioned, Corrections Corporation of America, and it just listed you know, a, a private prison operator. And I said, wow, that, that sounds different for sure. And I so thought that this was a very unique business where a state and federal government, uh, the states and, and the federal government would outsource the management of these facilities to a private operator like Corrections Corp. It wasn't like you were putting up Dunkin Donuts and you can just put up a bunch, you know, you had to work with government authorities. So you were essentially given a monopoly. Governments are always, well, state governments in particular, are always, um, trying to, or uh, are, are always, really stressed in terms of their finances. Mm. So if, if they get pitched, Hey, you can outsource this function and we can save you X amount of dollars, whether it's 10%, 15% or 20% from what you were paying beforehand, why don't you just let us do it? Uh, similar to, there was a transition with, with, with garbage pickup, you know, a lot of municipalities took care of the garbage, but over time they outsourced that to, to private companies. And this was one of those instances. And there was just this very long runway for them and the reason why it comes up is not just the uniqueness of the business but you know one of the things that I learned from the Peter Lynch books was the concept of a 10 bagger where you would buy a stock and it would go up 10 times now that sounds great but what's most difficult is as an investor is being able to ride out that much of a gain mm. because usually you think After the stock doubles, if you find uh, a a winner, you're like, wow, I just doubled my money. I need to sell it and go find something else. You know, one of the hardest things to do in investing is stick to a good story, stick to a good business with good management and just let it ride. And that means absorbing downdrafts. That means sucking it up in terms of valuations because sometimes stocks get expensive, but they stay expensive. And it's just saying, are the fundamentals of this company or the fundamentals of this industry still good enough that you should just let that stock continue to ride and and not just sell it just because it's up? Because that's one of the mistakes that longer term investors make. Now, I'm putting aside a a trader who, you know, that's what they do. They, They take their gain and they move on to something else. I'm talking about a longer term investor in terms of of compounding a particular position, it's just very hard to hold on when you have a certain level uh, of gains. And this was one of those instances that I sort of just let go on the upside and it just happened to have been a 10 bagger, which I then luckily sold it because one of the negatives of this industry is that it's very political. You know, you can have a municipality that decides, you know what, we don't like the job you're doing uh, we're going to take it back in house, and we're going to end your contract. You know, you you are subject to government, and 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 one of the other things that I've learned in investing is I hate to do business with government because they're very fickle. They can change the rules on you, and um, if your your revenue is solely based on government, like it was for this company and this industry, well, you, you're you're really at risk if they decide to change change their mind. And, and a lot of these governments don't change their mind because that's the financially right thing to do. They do for a lot of times for political purposes. Yeah. And you have politicians that say, oh, how can we have uh, our prison system run by a private company? They're, they're, they're bad people. We need to do this ourselves. So, you know, but that's something that that, you know, I learned about. You because know, on one hand, you're like the stability of the government, but then the danger of doing business with the government.
1: Yeah. Well, I, as soon as you said, govern, the, the you know, the client, you know, for some people that would have been that would have set off alarm bells and been like, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. The payment on that is risky. I want to take a step back, though. It's incredible to me when you think about this, you had, as you said, thousands of names that you were looking at. Like you were basically reading the encyclopedia in your spare time and, you know, trying to look for inspiration. Does it amaze you that you happened to see that one company? I mean, you could easily see a scenario where you just blew past it like everyone else, especially because you didn't know. Why do you think that jumped off the page at you? you think it was luck? Do you think it was intuition?
2: Yeah. Uh, well, you're right. I could have just quickly uh, breezed through that particular page and never found it. Mm. Uh, so that definitely was a part of luck that actually read that page in full and, and went down each company line by line. Now, I had also found other companies in that in that book where I bought the stock and it, it didn't work out. Uh, this one stands out just because it was sort of my first 10 bagger that I had read about. Mm. Now, investing is obviously not that easy at all. It's not easy, period. Uh, it feels feels easy when you're in, in bull markets and, and money is easy and flowing and you know, you close your eyes, you buy stock, it goes up, and you feel like a genius. Uh, this was 1992, so we were sort of coming out of a recession. Now, I think maybe one of the other things that attracted me to this is that it was, you know, it was recession resistant. Mm. Whether the economy was was up or down, there were going to be people in prison. Now, you can also argue, well, if we go into recession, maybe that would lead to more crime, and more people would go to jail, but you know, coming out of a recession, I was, maybe I was thinking of trying to find things that were maybe less economically sensitive and that this was one of those ideas.
1: Mm-hmm. And how long did you stay in it? And d- how did you know when it was time to get out?
2: It, it was definitely, um, a couple of years. Uh, I can't remember exactly how many, I, I would say three to four years, five years, mm. and then, you know, wrote it into sort of the mania of the late nineties. And, I, I was always, you know, a, a sort of a value investor. I, I never got maybe just because I just read a lot about value investing. I never got caught up in the in the tech craze in the 90s and the valuation craze. So probably when the stock probably got too expensive uh, after the long run that it had uh, and also the mania that we were having in the broader stock market in 97, 98 and certainly into 99 that um, I probably just said, you know, I I, I don't want to participate in stuff that, uh, is just way over my head where valuations just didn't matter. Now, of course we, we, we repeat that many times
1: (laughs) over and uh, over (laughs) in in market
2: cycles and certainly over the last couple of years, but, um, that's probably why I sold it. But I got lucky selling it because then, you know, they ran into some, some, some problems and the stock fell and, and actually now the company still exists, but it's under a, a, a new name. I think it's called like the civic group CXW yeah. is is the symbol at which um, I think the original entity now now trades in and there were maybe some mergers within the space
1: yeah, they've had their share of, of legal issues, the ACLU yeah. and you know the whole that whole that whole sector I think is is scrutinized in a different way.
0: right You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads.
1: I think that brings us to your second trade that changed your life, which was buying gold in 2000. So I think you just started to touch on the environment at the time because we did have this sort of huge boom and um, and a lot of enthusiasm and mania. We were flipping over to the year 2000. There was a lot going on then. You sound like you were already feeling a little skeptical of the whole situation.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I was still young. But those couple of years just sort of passed me by uh, in terms of of the the tech side. You know, me being more of a value investor and being stuck in value stocks while, you know, every other tech stock was going crazy. And I had friends in college who were not in the financial markets telling me to be buying. They were telling me, who was in the business, telling me to buy Sun Micro and EMC and iOmega and JDS Uniphase and... One of the other things I tried to invest in things that I understand, and um, a lot of that tech stuff was just way over my head. So they were making all this money, and I was feeling like a complete moron, um, just owning some boring stuff. Uh, so that was difficult.
1: Were you doubting your 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 skills? Do you, you know, you look back, you had some early success, and now you're watching. The cocktail hour gang make it rich. Were you kind of thinking maybe I should look at this? Maybe I should learn about these tech companies, or maybe I I don't have it. Yeah,
2: I mean, you know, you know, I dabbled like some of the some of the stories like Global Crossing and Lucent and Nortel and uh, you know this was the, the the sexy stuff at the time, and uh, luckily I just dabbled rather than than making it notable because you know obviously all that stuff came crashing down. But, you know, a lot of through also a lot of reading books on just, you know, history of the markets and just trying to educate myself on previous cycles, because that was one of the epic bull markets of all time that, um, you know, I wanted to learn about others, whether that was the gold bull market of the 70s, that that was epic, where gold went from $35 to 850 by 1980. And and in 1999, 2000, you know, gold was in a 20 year bear market where you couldn't give it away. In fact, well, you could give it away, but really low prices where the Bank of England sold their entire stash of gold in, in and around that. I don't remember the exact year, 2000, 2001, or probably 2000 at $250 an ounce. They just dumped their entire, they're like, why do we need to own this? you know, it's been something that's been around for thousands of years, but they decided, why do I need to own this? So I started to just learn about, okay, this is an asset that's been through a 20 year bear market. And what are sort of the characteristics that drive it? What are the things that would drive it now? What would be a catalyst? What hurt it over the prior 20 years? And it was just around the time when, you know, Greenspan after raising The Fed funds rate to six and a half percent in May, 2020, then was all decided dealing with, with the crash in tech stocks in a bear market and started to slash rates and cut rates at the time to an unheard of 1%. Uh, so when gold, now I didn't buy gold at 250, I probably bought it maybe 350, 375, but, you know, gold went up for, I think it was 12 years in a row and, um, between buying physical gold. Uh, soon after GLD, the ETF was created. I think I bought GLD, and again, I can't remember exactly when it when it was. I think I bought GLD on the very first day that it ever started to trade, because I said, you know, this is a way of, of, of me buying it outside of having to buy physical, or or buying a gold stock. Because at the time, you can you, you really unless you traded futures, which I did not, right? Uh, you were you had you, your only choice was to buy physical or buy some of the the, the miners.
1: I was just going to say, this is a, it's interesting because in what you described before and even resisting the tech boom, you really were doing what you knew, which goes back to, you know, understanding a business and and the nature of business. And that was, you, you know, the value. Do they have a, a, a business model that other people don't? Like, you kind know, of looking for that. This sounds very different. This sounds like it's something that, there was a pretty steep learning curve because you weren't a commodities guy originally. You were a stock guy because you were a business guy.
2: Yeah, so definitely more macro.
1: Yeah. Was that hard?
2: Well, you know, I also like to read like Market Wizards, that book where it was basically interviews with a lot of macro people like Paul Tudor jones and Michael Steinhardt and Stanley Druckenmiller and Jim Rogers and uh, um, I'm trying to think the guy who ran Caxton, Bruce Kovner, those are also people that I read about. Uh, I think it was, maybe it was, I don't know if it was Paul Tudor Jones, or Bruce Kovner, like telling a story that in, in, in 1979, they were on the phone with uh, their broker and Russia invaded Afghanistan. And he's like, oh, I, I need to buy gold. And, you know, gold went up $10 overnight and he had this great trade. So I always had like sort of this, this macro interest uh, because I felt like, you can do all the bottoms up work you want, but you also need to understand the macro because they mm-hmm. they they intertwine with each other. So it's important really to to get your hands around both. So yeah, but this was to your point, sort of a macro trade for me for the very first time. But it just felt right after uh, 20 years of of pain and distress for gold holders, and I understood. Uh, you know, I started to learn about the history of it as a, as a monetary metal that lasted thousands of years and just happened to ride. That, that that bull market, but also, you know, Alan Greenspan sort of helped out by having rates at 1% for years and creating a bubble. And, you know, the beauty of, of owning GLD at the time after it eventually came out where I didn't have to worry about earnings estimates. Uh, but at the same time, there was pain in owning miners because they did well for a period of time, but learned that that's a really crappy business. And uh, the, the the mining industry and people can tell me if I'm wrong, that has probably destroyed more capital than and in any industry out there. So I learned that owning the physical stuff will do you better than owning the miners, even though I, I, I do own plenty of miners now, but I've learned uh, the better ones from the, from, the, from the bad ones. But luckily rode that, uh, and then we'll also turn it over because then, unlike Corrections Corp, where I sold out what I felt was the right time, uh, I overstayed my wealth, welcome in being long uh, gold and, and and also silver.
1: Yeah, and that's the, I mean, the timing part is really hard, right? And, and the third trade we're going to talk about was one of your worst, and that's being short stocks in 2006. So set up for us what's happening, again, during this period. You know, where are you at? Are you at a firm? Are you on your own? What's happening in your life? and in the markets?
2: So at the time I was on the sell side. So the, the, the investing I was doing was for myself, but I was more uh, out there uh, as a strategist, basically giving my advice in the market. So it was giving my public advice, but at the same time, putting my money where my mouth was and seeing that we had this this huge housing bubble. And um, just, just through, a lot of the work that I that I did myself, and a lot of the reading, and seeing that, um, well, what do you think happens when the Fed cuts rates to one percent and just leaves it there? Mm. You know, excesses are are created, and uh, it was it was clear that it was in housing, uh, what was not clear is when it would have mattered for the economy and the markets. So it was late two thousand and five when I believe it was Pulte Homes that said that their their, their business was slowing in Las Vegas. And for those that remember, Las Vegas, in addition to Phoenix, were two of the hottest housing markets where people were buying two, three, four, five homes on leverage, uh, <coughs> speculating and just flipping them. So I said, OK, well, this is it. Greenspan was raising in rates all through this time at a, quote unquote, measured pace. It was raising rates 25 basis points at a time that took the Fed funds rate from 1% all the way to when he stopped at five and a quarter, from which Bernanke then cut down to zero. But he was raising rates. And I just was saying that, okay, housing is very interest rate sensitive. The central bank is raising interest rates at every single meeting. Pulte Homes just told us that business is beginning to slow in Las Vegas. Therefore, the party is over. So I started to just short the S&P. And for me, that was just easier than because, you know, I, I just wasn't in the mood to just get run over, run over by investing, uh, shorting the bank stocks and mm-hmm. country credit and all this. I so just started to short like the Q's and the S&P's. And this is early 2006. And, and for those that don't remember, the S&P 500 topped out in October 2007.
1: Mm. OK,
2: so this is this is a long period of time of sort of market markets that were ignoring what was going on in housing. And then, of course, you, you fast forward and you had the Bear Stearns hedge fund blowups. But there was still the belief that this was contained. Now, obviously, I should have been short housing stocks. <laughs> my, my, my life would have been a little easier if I was just short specific stuff to mm. where the bubble was, housing, uh, housing finance, the bank stocks. But because I am not that aggressive when it comes to the short side. I didn't do it. I shorted the S&P, which was a huge mistake. So it went up in my face. And 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 one of the characteristics that I stupidly have is, is a level of stubbornness that I've learned to put aside when it comes to the markets and just, like I said, be more humble about the investing process. But I just felt I was just stubborn. And I kept fighting the continued rally in stocks and shorted more. And you know, still within my, my leverage parameters and my margin parameters, but just stuck with it and, um, lost a bunch of money. And to the point where when things started to unravel in the markets and you got past the peak of October, 2007, and you got further deeper into 2008 and Bear Stearns blew up and then you got to the Lehman blow up. I I was so scarred by the time of being short in my face that when it finally came about, and I was still sure that I covered my shorts when I broke even so I didn't lose money. Mm. I lost a lot of sleepless nights in the pain. But I didn't make any money because I just said, I just need to get back to break even. And the markets crapped out after that. And if I would not just stuck with it, I would have made real money. So this particular loss was not a, a loss of money. Um, it was a loss of, it was, it was lost money for a period of time for mm. call it 20, 22 months of of lost money that I finally got back in the, in the subsequent year.
1: Why do you think you stuck with it for so long?
2: Because I, I stupidly said, Oh, if I cover here, I'm going to lose X amount of dollars. And then we would go up more. And I said, Oh, if I cover here, I wear, I'm going to lose even more. And it just, it's just the exact wrong thing. I mean, that's the thing is being short of stock, the higher it goes, the bigger your exposure, mm. you know, when you buy something and it goes down, it, you have less exposure, you know, in terms of a broader portfolio. And I just, I just was just pigly stubborn and just stuck with it that I was so scarred by that. But that when the trade finally started to work, I, I made no money from it. Mm. I, I went through all this, you know, mental pain. I certainly probably paid a lot of margin fees and short dividends and all that. So I definitely lost money in terms of all this other stuff. And so, but it, it, it was painful being early. And that's the thing what we all know in markets is that early is, is, is as good as being wrong. And it's, it's better to be early on the long side if you if you still am confident in your idea. Mm. Because that's just a time horizon thing. But being early on the short side will, will absolutely kill you.
1: How do you bounce back from that in terms of like you have this framework, you have this system, you sound like you know yourself, you get a pretty good idea, you're a student of the markets, but when it goes wrong like that, does it kind of send you back to the drawing board? What do you do after that?
2: Well, on the short side, it tells me that like, that's not my thing. Uh, That can be cautious on the market, but to actually bet against it is just not my skill set. And yeah, I can still short stuff here and there and I can buy puts and I can short calls or whatever, because I'm much more disciplined in terms of risk management. But, you know, just shift back to, you know, focus more on what you're better at. And that's, you know, trying to find, you know, beaten up ideas and, and trying to find secular trends and themes and, and focus more, more on that, uh, rather than, you know, trying to Time the stock market. Because that's what I was doing. I was I was trying to time the stock market. And it's a really stupid thing to do, but also being on the sell side, where like you're getting paid to have a price target. You're getting paid to try to time the market. And you know, one thing I learned is that it's 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 no one can really do it. You you can you can be right trying to time, and there, there, there are plenty of good market timers out there. I was just not one of them.
1: Yeah, figuring out You know, what you're not good at is as important as kind of leaning into your strength. It's hard to admit sometimes, I think, because none of us want to think we're not good at something.
2: Uh, Absolutely. Yep, for sure.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. So
1: your fourth trade is also one of your worst, and that's not selling enough gold. So I love when, and this isn't the first time this has happened, sometimes people's best trade is also their worst trade, just at different periods in their life. So what happened this time around?
2: Okay, so rewind back into 2011. Um, had long i'd been long silver too so gold and silver silver went to this parabolic move went to 50 dollars an ounce give or take and i i did sell a bunch into that because I, I had learned from the late 90s you get a parabolic phase and it always comes crashing down so that that sort of lesson taught me to sell but I stuck with the gold and a small amount of silver and because I felt like that interest rates were at zero and remember in 20 nine the fed started down this qe path mm-hmm. and then they had qe1 at that ended. Then they had qe2 so we were sort of in this money printing world and i'm like how do i not just continue to own gold
1: and you've owned it all along from when you put that good trade on right that was one of your best trades you've held on to it and so that's what we're talking about you're now sitting in that fa- that what has been a decade-long fantastic trade
2: for you yep and, and gold had topped out in 2011, yeah, at 1900, September in 2011. But I knew on an inflation-adjusted basis that it should still go higher. We're in this new money-printing world. Now gold is going to really have this parabolic move. It'll go to 3000 And then all of a sudden, another year, you know, year goes by, and you're, I think it was either Denmark or Sweden started to experiment with negative interest rates. And then, of course, Draghi, whatever it takes, and QE, they're doing it. Japan was doing it and we're doing it. And I'm like, how can you not just continue to own uh, gold? And I started buying silver after it pulled back. So then we go into 2013 and now I left my sell side firm and I'm at a hedge fund and gold was one of my positions. And now in 2013, you're in QE infinity. So not only is 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 the Fed doing QE, but now it's QE infinity. It's it's a trillion dollar run rate that they were buying uh, assets. And I'm like, I said, how can you not own gold in this kind of environment? And gold just crapped out because I think that people felt that, OK, the Fed has our back for the stock market and the economy. And why do you want to own that 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 yellow piece of metal uh, in this kind of environment? There's no need. And uh, gold had a really difficult 2013. And then you got to a point where. You were headed towards, okay, a couple of years later, when the Fed, when's the Fed going to start raising interest rates? And if the Fed's going to start raising interest rates, why do I need to own gold? So I had rode this great bull market and was in the process of riding it, a lot of it back down. Again, selling some here and there, selling most of my silver, trading around here and there, but seeing a lot of those gains to dissipate in a macro environment that I thought was just picture perfect for it. Mm. And ironically, when Janet Yellen originally uh, or first raised interest rates in December 2015, after keeping it at zero for seven years between her and Bernanke, that that was that was the bear market bottom in gold, where it bottomed out at around 1050 after peaking at 1900, and then it's been you know, rallying ever since. And you know, I'm still long and have gotten much longer. The one lesson I did learn with the mining stocks was. That knowing that they were a crappy business. So I was really mostly losing money, giving back my gains on the physical as opposed to uh, the individual miners. Now I'm much more heavily involved in the miners because I just think their businesses are much better run. But to see gains just dissipate uh, was very difficult, especially when I felt that the environment was still very good. And that gets back to the original point on corrections is, you know, riding a bull market or riding A long term stock is really, really difficult. And getting off at the right time is really difficult. I mean, Amazon fell 95% from the peak in March 2000 to the bottom of 2002. And you can assume that their almost entire investor base in 1999 probably was gone by the bottom of 2002. But when you think about for those few that held on because they felt that Amazon was changing the world and Jeff Bezos. Was a genius. I want to write his coattails. Well, not only did they not sell, but they were buying all the way down at cheaper and cheaper and cheaper prices, and have ridden, you know, multitudes of of, of gains and to riches ever since. Now, obviously, gold is a commodity, or you can call it a currency. I like to call well, it for currency that has these cyclical waves up and down, mm. as opposed to investing in the long-term prospects of a business. But it still, from an investing standpoint, gets to a lot of the same decision making is how long do I ride this? When do I get off? Uh, can I get off at the right time? And if I don't, <laughs> riding it all the way, all the way down.
1: How do you not get married to your viewpoint? How do you avoid staying with? Because this is this is twice this has happened. I mean, obviously it happens to everyone, but these are two that you really stand out for you. Have you reconciled? you know, the, the, the sort of narrative or the macro view you believe so strongly in, and yet it doesn't work out in terms of the trade?
2: It's, um, it's, it's difficult. I think a lot of it has to do with constantly testing and retesting your thesis. And, and there are times when, you know, after losing money, a bunch of money, you just realize you're wrong. And you just got to suck it up. And you just have to eat that loss. Um, but things that I feel highly convicted on Trying to balance that conviction with the trade that's going against you for an extended period of time Mm. is is a really difficult balance. And I think it comes down to maybe sizing the position properly, where if you finally wake up and realize you're wrong, that loss doesn't end you. Mm -hmm. And sizing it properly that you can ride out being wrong for a period of time where you can take that pain also without ruining you. So a lot of it's that sizing because if I had sized these improperly and just got way too big uh, at least certainly on the short side it would have would have put me out that um you know covering so much against me that would have been really difficult and so I th- a lot of it has to do with that too with just sizing a position where you know it it's not keeping you up at night even though it can you know it still does
1: <laughs> yeah it still does of course it's a fine line between conviction and kind of getting blind to the truth. I mean, conviction, some of it is that gut. How do you tell the difference between, you know, the conviction, the good kind that is that, that gut feeling like, no, this is right. The ones that led to your, you know, your, some of your best trades. And then the flip side where you're just, you can't see what's really happening in front of you.
2: It's really important to understand the contra case. And if you are positive on something, really hear out what the negative side is. And if you hearing that negative side is you think that, okay, it's not really standing on, on a good foundation. Well, you, then you can maybe be more comfortable with your long position and, and certainly on the short side. But if that contra uh, idea and thesis makes you sit and wonder and think, you know what, you know there's something there. And I may, as, as, as confident as I might be, uh, I might be you know, barking up the wrong tree here, and that um, I can be wrong. And it's just constantly retesting uh, that thesis and, and understanding that, yeah, you're going to be wrong a lot. And uh, if it's going to happen, make sure it's not on the tree you're most convicted on, because that's where you potentially get most hurt on, because that's where your position could be outsized.
1: Do you think the more experience you get, the the wiser you get because you're able to look at things like that? Or is it kind of harder to take that on and kind of change your ways, especially when you've had success?
2: It, it, that is a great question. Uh, it really is. I think on one hand, the lessons you learn, the painful lessons you learn, and the sort of the, the, the tuition that you pay and losses definitely weathers you and also helps you look out for where they're potholes and where they're not, because at the end of the day, you know, human nature never changes. And, you know, euphoria is typically followed by, you know, by, you know, a, a, a de- not a depression in the sense of an economic depression, but, you know, euphoria is followed by, um, you know, a hangover, and that's just human nature. And how, going through it, living through it helps you see that. I mean... Hmm. I didn't have to have read Charles Kinderberger's Manias, Panics, and Crashes to understand that in February 2021, what, we're, what we were seeing with those meme stocks was just your classic mania. Now, I didn't have the guts to short it. Uh, in retrospect, you know, people made a lot of money shorting a lot of those things after, obviously, people got badly hurt by it. Um, but I, I knew what I saw. Again, I did benefit from it financially, but I knew what I saw. Mm. Um, then on the other hand, you make a great point about getting stuck in your ways and, and, and being stubborn or pighead and, 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 and not being changed and not changing, uh, your style or your, or, or your way of approaching things. That's why I go back to the word humility, uh, I think is a really important characteristic, uh, of having it because having humility when it comes to the markets, I think is, is something that's really important to have because in a way, you know, if you have a portfolio of things, you're wrong every day in something in it because not every, you know, there, obviously there's some days where everything goes up. There's some days where everything goes down, but most of the time, some things go up and some things go down. So every single day you are wrong for that particular day in a position. That's just the, the, the way it is. And you just learn to live with being wrong. You just have to be wrong less than, than, than being right.
1: That's not easy though. People don't like being wrong.
2: No, but <laughs> markets teach you that that's just a way of life. <laughs> just just as you know, a baseball player can still make you know 20000000 dollars a year, hitting two fifty, and and basically um, you know getting out seventy five percent of the time, they can still have a pretty good career.
1: It's a great point because it's not really presented to us like that. I mean, we are sort of taught to excel and be right, right, and do well and seem smart and to hit a home run. People aren't like, hey, you're going you're gonna to strike out 75% of the time. But just, you know, when you do it, if you can, if you can hit it hard, then it's going to pay off. That's, that's really not how we present life to people. And it's okay to be wrong. They should expect to be wrong. Because if, if, if you're not, then you're not going to take a chance on anything except a sure bet. And there are very few of those.
2: Absolutely. You, you have to. And, and, and wrong is, is, it can be done in so many ways. You may love a stock, but your entry point may be wrong in terms of timing. Maybe it'll work out over a five-year time frame, but you may buy it up here and then it goes here. And your decision is, okay, do I, if I liked it here, do I love it even more here? Or am I wrong that I need to sell it? Um, I'm of the belief that at least when I do, when, when I approach an investment, when I love it here, it's because I really love the business and I want it to go down. It allows me to buy it lower. Now, of course, I get into traps where it keeps going lower and I was dead wrong on it. But you're wrong throughout that time. And you can be wrong for years mm. before something eventually plays out. But you just have to understand that that's just part of the business. It's part of what we do, being wrong.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. Well, Peter, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on my life and four trades.
2: Thanks, Maggie. It was a lot of fun having this conversation and uh, ripping off the scars and uh, and because uh, <laughs> it's it's good to talk about. It
1: yeah no it's so it's so helpful i think for other people um because you tend to just think everyone else is successful right and it's had it easy um and you know some of the biggest lessons come from the the ones that didn't go right so not only for yourselves but for for everyone listening so appreciate you sharing that with us thanks so much all right that's a wrap on this week's edition of my life in four trades For more on the series, visit realvision.com forward slash my life in four trades. Make sure to use the numeral four. This podcast is a production of Real Vision. Our executive producer is Lisa Desai. Our producers are Frank Fowler and Michelle Ribeiro. Our sound engineer is Levi Mercurio. Our production assistant is Ranjani Vankarakrishnan. And this show is hosted by me, Maggie Lake.